The following sermon was preached on August 22nd, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Dr. Jonathan L. Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, preached this sermon entitled Dead to Sin on Romans 6, 5 through 14. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. There's a phrase that all of us have no doubt used throughout our lives, probably on many occasions. It's a, it's a phrase that's common in the English language. We understand what it means. And it's also found in other languages as well. It's not unique to the English language because I think it carries with it something that is almost universal. And the phrase is this, too good to be true. And we know what that means. What it means is when we hear something that that appears to be uh, so overwhelming, so positive, that, that we think to ourselves that there must be a catch to it. I was watching a few months ago a documentary on the uh, financial crimes of Bernie Madoff a number of years ago, perhaps about a decade ago, and that was one of the phrases that kept being repeated. It was a phrase that was repeated both by those who had invested with Madoff. They said, I should have known it was too good to be true, and it was also a phrase that was heard frequently by those who chose not to invest with him. They said, I knew, I knew it was too good to be true. And we use it today to talk about offers that we receive. We, we realize instinctively that what it is that we're being offered can't quite be it. It's too good to be true. We sometimes even use it of people. We'll meet someone for the first time and we'll think, you know, it was almost too good to be true. The, the answers were just too neat, too clean. Something was wrong. Too good to be true. It's actually a phrase that's used in a technical way in newsrooms across America. Frequently, headlines that are proposed will be shot down in newsrooms for just this reason. We can't put that headline out there. No one will buy it. It sounds too good to be true. And the reason why I bring all of this up and bring this to the forefront of your minds this evening is because there is a sense in which at the beginning of our passage, at the beginning of verse 5, and even going back earlier to verse 1 of this chapter, there is a sense in which we might be tempted to say when we account for the Apostle Paul's words that these words are too good to be true. Indeed, I think it's often the case that the reason why many of us struggle with the teaching of Romans 6 and with the Bible's teaching of sin and sanctification as a whole is because it is based upon, it's grounded upon truths that are, that are such overwhelmingly good news that we almost can't have a space for them in our thinking. We see how Paul begins. Paul begins with perhaps the greatest news of all. It's about a new reality for those who are in Jesus Christ. What Paul begins with, and really what governs all of Paul's teaching in verses 5 through 10, is is the good news of our union with Jesus Christ. Now this news is so good that we might be tempted to discount it. But in fact, we must embrace it if we're to understand what Paul says about our sin. 
What does he say about this new reality of union with Christ? Well, first of all, he asserts it in verse 5. He assumes it. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul Paul begins in verse 5 with a past reality that is true for Christians. The Bible teaches that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come to Christ in faith, repenting of your sins and trusting in Him and Him alone for the salvation that He offers freely, if that is true of you, then Paul says you have been united in Christ's death. We know that the Apostle Paul uses this language even to describe his own conversion. You remember in Galatians 2, those words Paul uses when he describes what it means to be a Christian, when he describes what it means to have this new life, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And he goes on to say this, because I've been crucified with Christ, it's really no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are a Christian, know this. The Bible says you have been united with Jesus Christ in his death. Paul brings this up elsewhere, not only describing his own conversion, what it means for him to be a Christian, but he brings it up when he's describing what it means for the church as a whole, for all Christians. He says, we've been buried with him in baptism in Colossians 2, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all your trespasses. We are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Now look at what Paul does in the remaining verses. He teaches very clearly that not only is this a past reality, not only is this something that has happened, if you are a Christian, you have been united to Christ in his death, but it also has present and ongoing implications Look, for instance, at verse 6. Because we have been united with Christ in his death, because this is integral to what it means to be a Christian, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's the logic of verse 6. The logic of verse 6 is that because we have been united to Christ, the reason for this, the outcome of this, is that in fact, having been crucified with him, the body of sin might be brought to nothing and we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our union with Jesus Christ in his death isn't just a theological box that we check off that has no ongoing present implications. No, no, Paul says, because this is true, understand what the implications of it must be. The implications of our union with Christ in his death is that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul is no doubt reflecting here on something that the Bible teaches us about very clearly which is that in our salvation, 
we are united to Christ in his death, and we are also made alive by the Spirit. You remember that encounter, don't you, that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And it was shocking, really, to Nicodemus, because Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we know that the Apostle John reflected deeply on this because when John writes his first letter, the first letter that we have that he wrote to the churches, he says this, No one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There are present and ongoing consequences that go hand in hand, that are inextricably linked to this reality that we are united to Christ in his death. And this this work of the Holy Spirit, this work really of, of the triune God in the lives of believers is so profound and so deep that the Synod of Dort, they talked about it this way. They said, by the efficacy of that same regenerating spirit, that is the spirit that brought us to new life as we were united to Christ in his death, he pervaded the inmost recesses of man. You see here that this not only is a past reality with present and ongoing consequences, but it also has significance for our future. Look at verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know uh, that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What Paul says clearly in verse 8 and then expands upon in verses 9 and 10 is that because we have died with Christ, because we are united to Christ in his death, what that means is we have an entirely different future than we would have apart from Christ. If we died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. We read about this Elsewhere in the scriptures, don't we? This is something that Paul frequently reflects on. In Colossians 1, he he talks about our union with Christ this way. He says, it's it's Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. In other words, because you are united to Jesus Christ, you will live with Jesus Christ. You have this confident expectation of glorious resurrection one day. Striking, isn't it, when we see the accounts in Scripture of the day of judgment, the way in which Jesus describes those who are judged eternally. Here's what we read in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in all His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He'll separate them one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The stakes of knowing Christ, or as Paul would say, being known by him, being found in him, couldn't be any higher. It's either Christ in you, the hope of glory, or depart from me, I never knew you. But Paul says, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And what a glorious expectation this is. It's not simply that we won't enter into the judgment that Jesus describes so vividly for those who are not found in him. There's also a great glory wrapped up in all of this. Our confession speaks of this. Our catechism speaks of this. When it asks the question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? And listen to this in light of verse 8. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Now, why are these truths so hard for us to believe? Why are we tempted to take this paragraph and place it in the category of too good to be true? Something we can't even fully understand or grasp or appreciate well, I think there are a number of reasons why we might put this in that category, why we might have trouble believing the promises, actually the, the statements that Paul makes about reality for the believer. First of all, we look at ourselves and our sin. And we see the great gulf that is fixed between us and the holiness that God demands. You know, you only have to look at this day. Certainly you reflect back on the past week. And you realize that, well, the Bible says you're united to him in his death, and that has ongoing consequences in terms of the body of sin being done away with, and it has a future consequence in terms of your being raised up with him in glory. Our current reality often doesn't feel that way. We're conscious of our weaknesses, of our failings, of our sins. You could probably pick one relationship and look at one day of that relationship and see many instances of your own sinfulness. We also might be tempted not to believe this because of our reading of God's Word. The Word of God is very clear about the sinfulness of human beings. We see right from the fall of man, as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, we see immediately the consequences, the pervasive consequences of that first sin. Not only is there separation from God and judicial condemnation, there's also a deep corruption that sets in immediately 
We see Adam blame his wife and the wife blame the serpent and all of them run from God in shame. And then if we turn the page to Genesis chapter 4, we we see how deep the corruption is as Cain kills his brother Abel and as false worship is offered up to the Lord. We reach Genesis 6 and it says this, the Lord God looked down from heaven and he saw that every thought of man's heart was always evil all the time. And as if that statement weren't enough, we see it played out in the history of Israel. We see how grossly they ignore the Lord's teaching and in direct violation of His commands turn to other gods. And then we come to the teaching of Jesus who reminds us that for as often as we break the law, Perhaps we haven't even understood it and taken it seriously enough. Because Jesus, of course, teaches us what was clear enough in the Old Testament, but needed to be made even more clear when he says that actually all of these things are matters of the heart. So we see what the Word of God teaches about the nature of man. We look to our own experience. We have difficulty appropriating for ourselves with confidence, these truths in Romans chapter 6. But of course, to do that is to read the Bible selectively. Because you'll remember that even in the midst of Israel's sin in the Old Testament, God repeatedly promises that He will give them new hearts, put His Spirit within them. And in the New Testament, in the shadow of Jesus' teaching about the significance of the law, we read texts like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember those words from our fathers in the faith. By the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit, He pervaded the inmost recesses of man. Our unbelief betrays the fact that we perhaps somehow think that there is something within us that God can't actually change. That if we're Christians, He is not at work in us changing. It's a heart of unbelief. Well, in light of this great news, and these are facts These are truths that the Scripture teaches us if we're Christians. Paul gives several commands. He really gives three major commands in the remaining verses, but all of them have to be grounded in that reality of our union with Jesus Christ in His death. The first command comes in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't a work that Paul's giving us to do. What he's simply commanding is that we believe that we have confident trust in what he has just revealed to us and what the Bible reveals to us. In other words, Paul's saying 
These are things, these are truths, these are facts that you need to understand and you need to believe. You need to know that these things are true. You need to live your life in light of the fact that these things are true. The word he uses is a word for counting or, or thinking or, or calculating certain things. In other words, he's saying you need to trust in Christ and what he has said and know that these things are true of you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are born again to a living hope. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ. And it is true that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You will be raised with Christ on the last day and vindicated by him. He is at work transforming you even now, even the inmost recesses of your heart, those areas that you think might never change. You know, there's a great deal of discussion in our world today about identity. There's a whole reason for that in the history of philosophy in the West. There are reasons why we are consumed with identity, consumed with the idea of creating our own identity or identifying ourselves in certain ways. Sometimes this question of identity can be fairly insignificant. This isn't new in our world, of course. We might identify ourselves by our affection for certain sports teams, by our love of a certain kind of music. But, but the way in which identity has grabbed a hold of our consciousness as a society today goes far deeper than this. Oftentimes it's wrapped up in sinful tendencies. I am this kind of person. My identity is wrapped up in some kind of sexual sin. My identity is wrapped up in the fact that I look down on people who are different from me, who have a different background from me. And in some situations in our culture and in our society today, if you stack up enough of the right kind of identity points, if you identify yourself correctly in the right number of ways, it can prove that you have an advantage, that you are better than others, that what you say ought to be heard. And what they say ought to be discarded. This, of course, leads us to a, a perpetual sort of status anxiety. It forces us to make smaller and smaller divisions with other groups as we seek to win this identity game and to be heard. This can even take on a religious tone, and this is nothing new. This is something that we see even in the New Testament. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He talks about himself before Christ revealed himself to him. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me stack up my identity points. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then you know, of course, what Paul goes on to say. Whatever gain I had, however that might have affirmed me in my religious identity, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And that, I think, gets at one of the implications of verse 11. How are we to consider ourselves as Christians? What is the source of your identity? 
Who are you? Well, according to Romans 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, with that identity properly situated based on God's Word, based on the fact that you are, in fact, crucified with Christ, Paul gives two additional commands. Because of this new identity in Christ, this primary, central identity in Jesus Christ, verse 12 says this, Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't put sin in the driver's seat. Don't let sinful desires be in charge of what you do. Don't don't reflect ahead of time about ways in which you can sin and get away with it. Or you can sin in a respectable fashion. Don't let sin be in charge. Sin doesn't define you. Yes, all of us, the Apostle Paul included, struggle with ongoing remaining sin. But Paul says, if you know this truth of union with Christ in His death, then the one thing you can't do is you can't let sin reign in your mortal body. We do this in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we even do it with the language that we use. We'll say something like this. Well, you know, I was born this way. I can't change. Sin is in control. It's part of who I am. It's it's wrapped up almost in my DNA. Well, that's a way implicitly of saying, actually, sin is in charge here. It's how I'm wired. I, I, I fly off the handle easily. I can't control it. Sin is in charge here, not not me. Well, that's forgetting verse 11, and it's ignoring verse 12. You can hardly expect someone like me, who's been doing it this way for all these years, to stop. But what is that saying? That's, That's a way of letting sin reign in your mortal body. You're giving up all agency. Sin really is in the driver's seat of your life, you're saying. Sometimes we say it specifically in terms of agency. We frame it this way. I didn't, I didn't set out to do that. I didn't set out to sin in that way. But, but, but when the circumstances converged, I just couldn't help it. There's an interesting study that... Uh, psychiatrist who worked with prisoners did. He began recording all the conversations he had with these men who had committed, in many cases, because of where he was stationed, very violent crimes. And he noticed something very interesting. That when it came to the actual point of the crime, when it came to the time when they pulled the trigger, or when they knifed someone, he said he noticed almost invariably they switched to the passive voice. They would talk about the lead up to that event, and then they would switch and say something like, and then the gun went off. The knife plunged in. That's a way of removing agency 
from our actions. That's a way, actually, of saying at a certain point, a sin is in control of the whole thing. And Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Don't even think that way. Because thinking that way is invariably tied up in doing certain things. There are some sins that in your life seem like they have taken over. They're part of it. You schedule your life around them. You factor it in. It's sort of built into how you see yourself. You expect them to happen. You think you can't live without them. Those are all symptoms of letting sin reign in your mortal body. Thirdly, Paul gives a command in verse 13. It's really two commands, but the commands are really two sides of the same coin. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And then 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now what Paul is saying here is that every individual part of you, if you could divide yourself up into parts, every individual member of your body, he says, each of them, none of them can be presented to sin. Don't present any of them to sin. And do present all of them to God, which means that nothing is exempted from this list. We might even want to think in terms of our body when considering this command. You might say, your eyes, you have to watch what you read. You have to watch what you watch. Don't present your eyes to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them to God. There are are things that you shouldn't listen to. There are people that you shouldn't give access to your ears And similarly, there are things that you should be listening to more than you are. You should be giving yourself to the Word of God to read it and to hear it. You should be listening and sitting under sound preaching. You should be listening to the advice of the very best, most godly Christian friends, the ones you sometimes don't want to hear from because you know what they're going to say. Don't present that member to unrighteousness. Present it to God. What you eat in your mouth. Don't present that to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. What you drink, what comes out in your words. Those are all ways we can present that member to unrighteousness or present it to God. When it comes to your feet, there are places you should not go. And then there are places you should go to present this member to righteousness. There are things that you should apply your hands to and things that you must avoid at all costs. And we could go on and on. There are certain things that you need to cut out that you're watching. You you may need to make some new friends because because you realize that they're filling your ears and your mind with things that, that aren't consistent with the truth of God's Word. Your schedule may need to change. 
The, the way you spend your money may need to change. There may be devices that you shouldn't use or ones that you must use very differently in order for them to be even remotely presentable to God as instruments of righteousness. There are foods you may need to avoid, drinks you cannot have, places you cannot go, people you cannot hang out with, not necessarily even because they are in themselves sinful, but because they are a way of presenting your members to sin as instruments to unrighteousness, and you know it. And positively, there are things you must be reading, things you must be listening to, places you should be going more and more, and things that you ought to be doing to enjoy that which God has given to you. Why? Not because this in and of itself gets you into heaven. See, this is one of the problems with a text like this. It's often abstracted. Verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. These verses are taken and lifted out of context as a kind of work that you must do. And they're disconnected with the reality of union with Jesus Christ that precedes it and undergirds it entirely. No, Paul is not saying you do these things in order to be saved, in order to be united with Christ, as if that has any logic to it at all. No, he says, because you're united to Jesus Christ, because you are united to Him in His death and will be united to Him in His resurrection, these are things you must keep a close watch on. And in fact, he returns to this in verse 14, doesn't he? As if he knew that we might be tempted to make this into a kind of works salvation framework. What does he remind us of in verse 14? Well, one of the great themes of the book of Romans. Sin will have no dominion over you because something has been done to you and for you. You are not under the law, but you are under the grace of God. So. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.